welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith's weekly sermon podcast. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, Ecclesiastes, Life Under the Sun. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12. We're continuing in our new series with uh, the second sermon in the series. I do want to encourage you, if you missed the sermon from last week, to please go back. That really is the kickoff. That's the beginning, and it helps orient you as to where the book is going. So it's available uh, on our website, of course, audio, video. You can even get it in uh, manuscript form, however you do. But I really encourage you to go back and listen or watch that sermon, and that helps set the stage. Well, today, proceeding from that, looking at chapter 1, starting in verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity 
and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Blessed Lord, you have caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning. Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Before we dive into Ecclesiastes, I want you to think with me uh, about the testimony of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament to the churches in Corinth, the church in Philippi, to Thessalonica, and including even a note to Timothy personally, the Apostle Paul commands imitation, specifically of himself in Christ. He says, and I quote, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, that he could make such a statement, indeed a command, not just once, but repeatedly, well, it tells us much about the man devoted to God, doesn't it? For he was that same man who assisted those who stoned Stephen. The same man that persecuted the church and Would it not have been for divine intervention, he would have continued on his murderous mission. It took the revelation of the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus to halt the pharisaical zealot in his tracks, quite literally, right? Perhaps in light of his past, Paul referred to himself as, quote, the worst of all sinners. He referred to himself as the very least of the saints and the least of the apostles. Unworthy to be called an apostle, he said. Why? Because he said, I persecuted the church of God. And yet, I think of it almost as audacity. He had the audacity to say to the Philippians, for example, what you have learned and received and heard, and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Those are remarkable words from a man who had such a past. Well, similarly, Solomon had quite a sordid past. Leading some, wrongly, I might add, to discount Ecclesiastes as, well, you know, Ecclesiastes, that's just the lament of an angry old man. (laughs) Well, no. What we find, and we find in our passage today, is that Solomon is submitting himself as a case study. Now, he is not submitting himself to be imitated. But what he is doing is he is saying, here. I'm going to be transparent with you. This is how I lived. This is what I did. And history reveals that he whom God appeared to. Think about this. To Solomon. God appeared to Solomon and spoke directly to him. And God promised wisdom and discernment and riches and honor. And what did Solomon do? 
One of the confessions we use in our liturgy. Solomon sinned and did wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from God's commandments and rules. But as a covenant child of God, God had mercy on Solomon. Not leaving him to the blindness of his sin, but graciously opening his eyes again and again to see the folly of sin. And through his failure and by God's grace, he now, well, he now is the preacher. And he's preaching a sermon to you and to me that we might learn of God's mercy shown to him. For Solomon's sin is not foreign to our fallen human condition. It is not as if we go, Boy, that's Solomon. He was quite a rascal. Not like me. No. No, in fact... Just as there is nothing new under the sun, there's nothing new under heaven, the temptations that we encounter, they go all the way back to the garden. For when Satan in the form of a serpent succeeded in tempting Eve, the scripture says that when she looked upon that forbidden fruit, she saw it as good for food. A delight to the eyes. To be desired to make one wise. And so, she ate and sinned and shared. And now all have sinned. The Apostle John summarizes these three temptations of Eve that are also common to all of us. The Apostle John summarizes them this way. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Apart from the forbidden fruit, however, think about this. What Eve desired apart from the forbidden fruit, was not evil. She desired food. Not sinful. Thank God. She desired pleasure. Also not sinful. Thank God. She also desired wisdom. Not sinful. Thank God. All of these, food and pleasure and wisdom, they're all blessings from God. To be enjoyed as part of God's good creation. But when we seek them apart from God, when we seek them through what God forbids, well then, we sin. And we suffer for it. As Eve did, and so also Solomon. And so what I want to do is I want to look at these three temptations that Solomon lays out, and I might add, for those of you who are taking note, Solomon lays them out in the reverse order of Genesis chapter 3, and what we read of the temptation of Eve and her subsequent sin. Solomon turns it, goes in reverse order, and he starts with what I want to call the temptation of perception. 
The temptation of perception, it'll differ than what you have in your bulletin. The topic, or rather the point is the temptation of perception. I'm using the word perception here as opposed to wisdom, as we see it translated sometimes, or knowledge, or insight. Because the general idea here is that Solomon, as well, we see this in Proverbs as well, Solomon is going to use the term of wisdom or wise as a synonym for how we gain knowledge, how we take in information, how we gain insight, all of these are what Solomon is talking about. That is perception, the temptation of perception. And if we think back to the garden, Eve looked not to the Lord, but she looked to the fruit for provision. She didn't think about going to the Lord, but she looked through temptation to the forbidden fruit to be desired to make one wise. That's what it says in Genesis chapter 3. To be desired to make one wise. Similarly, Solomon did not look to heaven, but to the world. To be desired to make one wise. And what he did is he poured himself into the pursuit for all that is done under heaven. He would, we would say he consumed himself with knowing more and more and more. The expression under heaven here is a Hebrew idiom similar to the expression under the sun. And the general idea here is that everything in life in this fallen world, Solomon wanted to know, and here's the key, he wanted to know it all. He would learn more. He would experience more. He would know more until, at least in his mind, until there was nothing left to know. And if God in heaven knows it all, then Solomon under heaven, well, he'd know it too. And if this sounds like arrogance, well, it's because it is. (laughs) Satan tempted Eve saying this, Eve, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God. (laughs) Solomon looked to the world to be enlightened. To know what God knows. To be like God. And are we any different? Really? The temptation is the same and has been the same from the very beginning. No. We don't look down our noses at Solomon because we know. Consider the age in which we live. The so-called information age. Right? In which we have access to more information than ever before. But what is behind our zeal to know more? What's behind it? Is it to glorify God? And to grow in godliness? Or is it to be like God? Knowing, well, everything. Consider our consumption of so-called news. What is gained from our ever-increasing consumption? Think about this with me. What is gained by our ever-increasing consumption? In his 1985 classic, which I recommend everyone read... In his 1985 classic, Amusing Ourselves to Death, Neil Postman observes, and I quote, 
The news elicits from you a variety of opinions about which you can do nothing except to offer them as more news about which you can do nothing. (laughs) And Postman foresaw the futility of our age. Long before him though, Solomon saw the same thing. Solomon said, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. You see, we live in a seemingly unlimited consumption of information age. And yet, and I know you're reading, listening, or watching about this in the news. You know this to be true. In the age in which we live, we are more anxious, we are more vexed, we are sorrowful for it. Like Eve and Solomon before us, we want to know all that God knows. And what we're finding is futility. Yet scripture does encourage us to pursue knowledge, doesn't it? And so what's the distinction? What's the distinction between this glut of information and the wisdom that God encourages in Scripture? We are to grow in godly perception. We are to grow in godly perception. The sage says in Proverbs, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. And so perception is not sinful in and of itself. But... Pursuing it apart from God is sin and leads to futility. Wisdom, knowledge, insight are not found apart from God in worldly pursuit. This is incidentally where our culture pushes back strongly. And they're pushing back strongly to you to say, No, this is secular information. Right? The myth of secularism. Right? There's no such thing. God is God. He's sovereign over everything. Right? And so because of it, the Proverbs all the way back in Proverbs chapter 9, it says, listen closely, share it with your neighbor, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. You want to grow in knowledge? You want to grow in wisdom? You want to grow in in insight? You start with fear of the Lord. And you don't divorce it from the Lord. The irony of Eve's sin, the irony of Solomon's sin, the irony of our sin is that God gives wisdom to those who ask. Think about it. You know this verse well. In James, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without approach, reproach, and it will be given him. James says, ask for it. God gives it. And rather than ask, Eve ate. Rather than petition, Solomon consumed. And when we disconnect the gift from the giver, and when we disconnect wisdom from God... When we disconnect what we know from God's provision, we deceive ourselves into thinking that what we know, or what we can know, answers everything. 
As someone jokingly said, modern Christians don't have to pray. They have Google. Which is funny to the point of tears. Because Solomon knew long ago, he said, what is crooked cannot be straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, some things in life are what they are. And all the information in the world can't fix it. The second point that I want us to look at is this pleasure. And Solomon follows the temptation of perception with the temptation of pleasure. Eve looked not to the Lord, but the forbidden fruit. And it referred to it as the delight of her eyes or the lust or desire of her eyes. Similarly, Solomon looked... Well, he didn't look to heaven, but he looked to the world and its pleasures. And here's what he, he said. I'm going to say this to myself. I'm giving myself permission. Enjoy yourself. And like his pursuit of wisdom, he poured himself full bore, a complete hedonist into pleasing himself. In other words, pleasure became his purpose. He restrained neither his head, nor his heart, nor his hands. Whatever he desired, he said, I did it. And while Solomon will have more to say about his pursuit of pleasure later, here he tells us about this lust of the flesh. And he picks two topics I find interesting. He picks two to describe it. Laughter and liquor. These are the two areas that he summarizes. Now, he's going to give more to us later, but here, that's how he summarizes it. And the irony is, is that neither laughter nor liquor bring fulfillment, but they let us like leeches. The letting of blood, and the leeches crave more and more. And what does the leech leave? Nothing, but only takes. Think about it this way. If you know someone who is consumed with entertainment. Or if you know someone who is consumed with intoxication, you know that sobriety is lacking, both figuratively and literally, right? You know that the person who is addicted to entertaining themselves, the person who is addicted to drugs or alcohol, you know that sobriety is something that they struggle with. In the pursuit of entertaining or intoxicating amusement, there's never enough. You can never entertain yourself, never amuse yourself, never make yourself high enough. There is always more and more. And rather than soberly seeing what Solomon says, the entertainment addict determines that he... Well, the problem is I haven't indulged enough. That's the problem. And they rationalize it in their mind that if only I could do more and more and more, well then finally, finally I'll, I'll, I'll get there. I'll have, well, I'll have amused myself to death. But it never works that way, does it? There's never enough amusement. There's never enough booze. The pursuit of pleasure apart from God and in godliness is folly. Accomplishing nothing of substance. Which is why the one consumed with amusing himself seems characteristically superficial 
shallow, sad, not happy, not party on. David Gibson observes, Our national pastimes, for all their pleasure and fun, for all their creativity, are, for most people, simply a means of anesthetizing themselves against the pain of reality. Whether you are at the more sophisticated end of the scale with art, music, and fine wine, or whether you are watching a body stand-up comic in the back room of a shabby pub, does it solve much? Gibson asks. Looking back, Solomon says, no, it doesn't. Doesn't Doesn't solve anything. He says, I said of laughter, it's mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? Pleasure disconnected from God yields not blessing, but curse. And it's often the curse of futility. In contrast, pleasure in God is not only a blessing, but pleasure in God is lasting. The psalmist sings to the Lord. I'm quoting from Psalm 16, beautiful words. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. You see, unadulterated pleasure is found not apart from God, like the world tells you, but it's actually found in God. It's like one pastor says, God is not a killjoy. He's the source of true, lasting pleasure. And according to His Word, through the indwelling presence of His Spirit, He gives us joy. That's why joy is listed as one of the fruits of the Spirit. Or as our shorter catechism teaches us, man's chief end is to glorify God. And what's the second half? And enjoy Him forever. Hmm. We were made to glorify God but we were also made to be pleased in Him. And what Satan offered Eve was counterfeit. Believing the lie that pleasure is found apart from God's will, not according to it. And as is the temptation to believe the lie and seek satisfaction in the counterfeit is the tool of the devil. C.S. Lewis in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, said this, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The third temptation that I want us to look at that Solomon presents to us is the temptation of provision. The temptation of provision. And again, I want to remind you of the garden. Eve looked not to the Lord, but she looked to the forbidden fruit. And it says that she looked at it and said, that's good for food. Similarly, Solomon, look not to heaven, but to the world. And he says, well, this is it. Look at this world and all that I can provide for myself. 
And after seeking to know it all, and then, so to speak, like forget it all, he just decided, well, that was pointless, that was pointless, time to go to work and own it all. And so, to a certain extent, he does. In fact, if you look at verse 4, it says, I made great works. And then if you watch the verbs that work through this, it's pretty fascinating. He says, I built, I made, I planted, I bought, I had more than any, and I gathered and I got. And in the eyes of the world, and in his own eyes momentarily, Solomon was a success. When you read this, that's what the world would say. Yeah, that guy. Be like that guy. He is a success in the world. Houses, vineyards, gardens, and parks. And and don't forget the fruit trees and the pools for irrigation. And he had perpetual slave labor for agricultural and domestic work. His herds and his flocks. No conviction. Just silver and gold and real estate. And and along with it, he had live music and entertainment. He was killing it. The world deemed him a success. And Solomon could confess in verse 9, I became great. (laughs) He says that. I quote, I became great. And I surpassed all who were before me. But despite all that he worked for, all that he made, all that he built and planted and bought and had and gathered in God, it was all for naught. What he gained, if anything, was that he simply got enjoyment out of the work itself. But even that he found was a vanity, a striving after the wind. And in the end, he says there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Think about that with me. Out of everything that he did, everything that he accomplished, he said, nothing. I'm left with nothing. By God's grace, Solomon was rescued from the entrapping sins of perception and pleasure and provision. And you and I are the recipients. If we will pay attention, if we will listen to his warnings, if we will listen to God's word, he's telling us. But it is far easier for you and I to see the sin of someone else than it is to see it in ourselves. And even more challenging is to examine ourselves and say with the Apostle, I want you to be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Do you know even one person who can make that claim? Well, it's not me. And I lament that. What wages war against Christ's likeness in us is the sinful flesh, which has an affinity, not for godliness, but for worldliness. That's why John, using the language of love, says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And it's why James adds to this, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And we know this to be true, don't we? But so often we are enticed by perception and pleasure and provision of this fallen world. All of which offer us nothing but the futility of the curse in Genesis 3. Instead, by God's grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, we have been redeemed to look to Christ. To look to Christ. Eve looked to the forbidden fruit to be desired to make one wise and ate it and gave it to Adam and so he ate and so all die. But Christ, but Christ became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Eve, she looked to the forbidden fruit as delight to the eyes and ate it and gave it to Adam and he ate it and so all die. But you and I, we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross that we might find joy in and through him. Eve looked to that forbidden fruit as good for food. And she ate it and she gave it to Adam. And he ate it and sinned. And so we all die. But we look to Christ Jesus. In whom God will supply every need of ours. According to his riches and glory. And so looking back. Looking back on his life. Solomon saw clearly the brevity of life. The futility of worldliness. Indeed the vanity of it all under the sun. The story of his life. Told the tragedy. Of misspent blessing. But it need not be repeated. What is the story. That your life is telling. Is it one of faith. Surrender. And dependence upon the Lord. Characterized by forgiveness. And love? Is it worthy of imitation? Or does it tell the story of vanity? Striving after the wind. Nothing gained under the sun. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be. If the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you that in your mercy you have allowed us to see how not to live in Solomon's example. And how he failed in being tempted in all the same ways that Eve was. And yet we confess to you, we have been tempted and sinned as well. We too in our own ways have sinned. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Christ. We thank you for the redemption that we have in his blood. We thank you for the victory that we have in his resurrection. And we pray that you would enable us by the presence of your Holy Spirit to live lives as fitting of those who are called Christian. That we may, through your enabling and your power, be able to also say with the Apostle Paul, imitate me as I, Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.